As you join us for another episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. It helps our podcast get a little bit more visibility. Welcome to season three of To Be Continued, Troubling the Archive. In today's episode, join guest producer Summer Harmony Twenish, talking with Hunter Duwashi and Miss Gwen Twenish. It's a dive into queer Algonquin relationality, conversations around homeland, histories, and kin from the perspective of three young Anishinaabe artists from Kitagansibi. This episode is meant to emphasize joy, hope, and the importance of daydreaming about what each of their artistic practices needs to look like beyond settler colonial and capitalist influences. My name is Summer Harmony Twinish. My pronouns are they, them, and she, her. I'm Algonquin from Kitagansibi. And I work as an illustrator and digital artist, um, as well as like a painter, and I dabble in all sorts of mediums. Uh, I'm an illustrator with House Nine Design, which is a design company based out of Montreal, Quebec. I do a lot of freelance work, and I do a lot of work facilitating arts ba- arts-based workshops with Indigenous youth. Um, I'm recording this from Chisasabi, Quebec, so Cree territory in northern Quebec. Um, I'm on residency right now working with a bunch of high school students, uh, doing paintings and resin casting, which is really fun. The theme of this season for this podcast is archives of longings, memories, and inheritances in arts-based practices. When I was thinking of this coming on as like a guest producer for this episode, I started thinking about memories and inheritances as Algonquin and Anishinaabeg living on our own territory. We have a very rich visual culture that speaks to our relationship with the lands we've inherited. These are lands that we've been in relation with since time immemorial. We have intimate connections that span generations, have lasted through settler colonial violence, displacement, attempts to assimilate, invisibilize, and silence us. When I was thinking about our identities as queer Algonquin people, I was thinking about how queerness exists as a direct challenge against colonial cis-heteropatriarchal relationship and gender ideals. The pronouns in our language aren't even based on gender. We speak about things in relation to us, and pronouns are determined by whether something is animate or inanimate. Being queer, being Algonquin, and being artists, it's almost impossible to create artwork that isn't inherently political. Everything we do is informed by our experiences, the experiences of of our ancestors, and our relationships to the land. There's no separating that. And I think my hope for this episode is that we can hold space for our joy as Algonquin people, our deep love for our homelands and everything that encompasses language, kin, ceremonies, and the art that we create. And lastly, our hope for what's to come. So I think we'll kick this off by introducing ourselves. Um, So our names, pronouns, what mediums we typically work with, and anything else you feel is important to mention. So work you've done, accomplishments that you're proud of. I think it's like a really awesome time for us to kind of brag a little bit. And obviously that means, you know, brag for Native people isn't the same as bragging, I think, for non-Native people because we're always told to be humble. Um, But, you know, let's brag a little. (laughs) An accomplishment that I'm proud of is being able to, like, begin a career as an artist, I think, When you're younger, you're kind of told you can't really just be an artist full time or you can't find a career in something creative without kind of struggling. 
Um, and I believe that for a long time, but now I've reached a point where I'm like, you know what? Uh, I'm just going to do it because, you know, why not? Um, and yeah, it's so far working out. Fingers crossed it continues that way. <laughs> but I'll pass it on to Hunter and you can introduce yourself. That was a really good intro. Like, a <laughs> I definitely feel you on that where someone tells you, oh, you must have to be the starving artist before you can actually make money or build a life out of what that's some BS. You know, we out here doing it. We out here doing big things. Uh, so, Quay. Thanks for joining my us name's for Hunter another Dawashi. episode. My pronouns Don't forget are to he subscribe, him. leave us a rating uh, and a review. And it helps from us get that much more of a platform. That's where I'm currently at right now in my community. What was the next thing I was supposed to say? <laughs> okay, yeah, mediums. The two me, uh, well, a little bit more of who I am, I guess, before I dive into the mediums is that I'm a, I'm a multimedia artist and communications consultant. Uh, I specialize a lot in digital illustration, uh, video work, animation. I like to dabble in a lot of different media outlets, but by far my favorite has been digital illustration. You know, like graphic design is my passion. <laughs> and yeah, one of the works I think I'm most proud of for myself would be um the Protect the Moose design I created for the Moose Moratorium that occurred and is still kind of happening to protect and conserve the moose population in, on Algonquin traditional territory in Le Parc Le Vendry. Um, it's something I kind of created while I was away from home when the movement initially started happening. Uh, my kind of reasoning behind it is that I come from a family of hunters and Having the moose be a big thing within my life and being one of my one of my most favorite uh, meals to have, and um, I wanted to do something that would uh, to kind of raise awareness. And being away from home, being away from the my territory, I felt like very very lost and uh, defeated by not being able to be there. But in spirit, I created something that you know, to help from afar, to create awareness, to give this movement a voice and to see how much traction it got, to see how much movement it got allowed my, like myself, not only as an artist, but as an individual to just grow and meet new people and take on a bunch of different projects and works that allows myself to further and further grow. So yeah. So thank you, Summer, too, for having me here today. This is this is conversations that need to happen and it's fun to be part of. So miigwech to you. Koi, hello. My name's Miss Gamintwanish. I am a self-taught artist from Kitakanziwi, and I'm currently living in Ottawa. Um, my main mediums are acrylic and digital. I started off with acrylic, but I think and like last year was one of um like the start of me working mainly with digital more because uh, one of my recent projects that I'm really proud of is uh, Burgoffman College. It was for uh, <laughs> for six animal animal murals. It's like they're used as pathways. So once you like walk around a building, you'll see like ten by feet animals, which is pretty cool. And I graduated from there, so it was it's a pretty big deal. I never expected that especially because I didn't graduate. Like, I 
didn't graduate from an art program. I graduated from hairstyling. So it was completely different than what I planned to do. Um, just to go back to like the main intros, it was like my pronouns are she, her, they. Yeah, for sure. Um, I really love the murals you did for Algonquin College. I remember when you posted them, I was like blown away. I was like, this is freaking sick. I I actually got an uh, email from them when I had COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I was sick, dying, like dying in bed. And then I got the email. I was like, instantly, <laughs> my mood was like completely different. So it cured the COVID. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's amazing. I have like admired both of you for like a very long time. Um, and just like your artistic styles and what you put out. I wanted us to talk a bit about our earliest memories of seeing or being moved by art. So either in our family or our community, and that can mean, you know, painting, it can mean traditional mediums, obviously like earrings, beadwork, embroidery. Because I know for myself, like my Kokum was my biggest inspiration. Uh, like my whole family on either side is like full of artists. I Ms. Gumin's my cousin. Um, so it's probably like passed down. But uh, my grandma on my mom's side, especially um, because like her and my grandpa never finished school, they made ends meet by, you know, working as guides for hunters. Um, my grandmother made moccasins and mittens and tanned hides and was always doing something to try to like get money together and I used to sit there and look at her embroidery and her beadwork and just like was in awe of it um and I think like because she also worked with a lot of natural materials and she always had like multiple things on the go that's kind of how I try to approach art like I'm always doing something I always have like something new I want to learn or um like right now in the class I'm in with like the students, we go out on the land and we pick like moss and little acorns and things that we can like somehow include into our project. And it's kind of like cute too, because um, like the youth I'm working with are so knowledgeable about their homelands up here. They're just like, they're telling me these things. They're like, oh, this is like Labrador tea. You can drink it when you're sick or when your lungs are like hurting or whatever. And I can be like, oh, well, where I'm from, we have cedar and, you know, we'll prepare it and we'll drink it. We'll do all these things um, and like kind of compare. So anyways, I'm <laughs> rambling, but I think like, yeah, we learn a lot from a very early age as like Native kids about art. Um, and I, I want to hear your stories. I love that. That sounds super cute. The, that I like out on the land. And, like, being able to pick stuff and choose, like, that's super cute. I think someone who comes to mind when I think of first kind of being exposed to maybe a, a more, I don't know how to say it, modernized, like, way of creating art. Or not even maybe modernized, maybe more stereotypical would uh, be through paintings. I the first person that comes to mind is Dean Ottawa. Uh, seeing a lot of his stuff, a lot of his work throughout uh, KZ School, even John T. I think that John T. 
Yeah, seeing a lot of his work growing up, just being at KZ School, like having that be presented in many different uh, of the re- like resources we had, whether it be a book or what else, kind of just any other things that were there, like their art was kind of really dominated, I find, and present within community. They had a strong presence of their work. And I think what stood out to me the most uh, when I was really like kind of into drawing and that kind of stuff was uh, J. Ojik's Kagagi comics. You know that uh, how like to see our kind of ways of thinking and our art styles and our culture be kind of transformed in a more kind of modernized approach and mixing that kind of with like a superhero slash like looks like it could be potential villain was very interesting and to know that like our culture could be represented like through digital illustrations i think for me that was one like turning point in my head i think for me that i was like ooh, like we could do this kind of stuff like we could create this kind of stuff we can it was just it blows my mind so i think for me i gotta i gotta give props to jay ojik and kagagi for like putting that out there on a table and not only for us in the community, but like how far that expanded and grew like through a television series. And yeah, that's, that's one thing for me, I got to say. Yeah. That's a really like awesome um, example. Look at us go. (laughs) And there's probably more I forgot, you know, like I know there's definitely lots of people I'm not giving the credit to in this little in my quick moments of thinking, because I know there's lots out there, like even with the the tangible stuff, like I think of like the Kaye sisters with making the mocks and the all the hide stuff. Like there's so much like artists in our community that I know I'm not giving credit to. So I'm, I'm sorry, KZ, y'all. Like I'm sorry, I'm giving everyone the proper credit because we are a very creative community. But I know those ones I mentioned for me in my journey are the ones that like really come to mind at first and stick out to me i think john t was one for me too but um i think the first time because i didn't really grow up i was growing up in a small town like a french town in Beldor, and that obvious wasn't really like i was exposed to like native culture that much as much as i would like to be but um i think it was a like grade three or four our class was uh, learning art and there was just like one quick moment of like, yeah, this is a native artist. And it was, um, and I, I always butcher it, it's Norval Morisu. Norval Morisu, he, he was the one that created Woodland. So like, that was like my main in- inspiration for art now. And I was like, oh my God, native people could be artists and like well-known. And I was like, it like blew my mind. And then, um, I think, like, I just remember that. That's all I remember learning about. But, like, we learned other techniques and stuff. Um, and then when we finally moved back to KZ, I think I remember seeing John T. painting um, the map in the school. It was, like, a really large map. And I was like, oh, my God, I thought that was fake. <laughs> it was fake art like they printed it out or something and stuck it on the wall and i was like oh my god that's really amazing so i kind of like i was like i never really thought about being an artist but like it, it amazed me seeing it actually happening i was like 
wow, I wish I could do that. And then now here I am doing it. But I think back about those times all the time. And that's like inspirations for me just to keep going. And maybe that I'm doing that for other people and younger generations, which is like one of my main goals when I do art. You're doing it. You are a hundred percent doing that. A hundred thousand like percent. But I, I want to say too that um, I think now summer that you are one of my inspirations to like start switching up and not be so focused on just being indigenous. Like you can switch up your styles and try new technique. You don't have to stay in one like art style. You can you can mix it up and still be an indigenous artist, successful indigenous artist. Absolutely. I think that there's like a lot of pressure on native artists to like make something that looks native. And especially like as Anishinaabe with like the woodland style, like you were saying, Norval Morisot, like he really pioneered that. Now it seems like even when people reach out to me and it's not even really my style, but it's like they, they want something that looks indigenous. They want it to either be um, like the form line designs from the West Coast or like woodland style or something and you're like i sometimes i don't we don't do that um but the fact that it's a native person making this art makes it indigenous and i like how you talked about um this woman like not you really knowing that you could just be a native artist like mm-hmm. a pure accessible one like <laughs> accessible one yeah like it took me until university to really start learning about other native artists and being like oh my god there's like this whole other world out here yeah. <laughs> like um of like inspiration like it doesn't have to just be us learning about like dead white dudes from italy like <laughs> from like 500 years ago like <laughs> can only get famous once you're dead type <laughs> yeah like we could be making and doing good um and that kind of like leads me into the next question that i have which is like did you always want to be an artist and what led you down this path um like i know for me I studied art history for a bit at Carleton and I was just fed up because I was like, when are we going to start learning about people who aren't like Italian Renaissance artists? Like there's only so many times I can learn about Da Vinci without my brain like falling out of my nose Um, or like something like just shriveling up. Um, And then like I dropped out and I started working as a teacher here in Chisassabee. And it was like this art program. It's actually the one I'm like the class I'm visiting now for the next six weeks, but I, w- I used to be the teacher and it's called Mook Jam. And like, it, I'm totally butchering the name. It's in Cree, but basically they bring in artists from all over Canada, usually indigenous artists, and they do residencies in the classroom. And like, they have all sorts of different art styles and you teach it to the youth and you come up with like a big project that you help them through. Um, and the idea is like you're transferring skills to them. And so when I was teaching them, I would always be like, okay, you know what? Don't worry about your art being perfect. Don't worry about it being good because good is subjective. It's like you're here first and foremost to have fun and to tell your story. And as Native youth, that's what's the most important. And then I was, you know, like I I always liked making art. I didn't have that kind of like nurturing teacher relationship growing up. And so I started like taking my own advice and like making art in my spare time. And then I started getting commissions and like putting it out in the world. And I was like, 
this this is actually what I always wanted to do, and I just didn't have the guts to say it. Um, so yeah, I want to hear I want to hear about you guys. What led you down this path? For me, I think like I remember always being interested in drawing ever since I was small. Like I think ever since I could pick up a crayon, maybe even permanent marker might have been. <laughs> and my canvas may have been a few walls in in the house <laughs> in my parents' house, but. I, th- I think I've always been interested in uh, drawing and I remember being like in my teenage years and still kind of like taking on that drawing, like, you know, doodling in class and drawing on my free time and they didn't take it a hundred percent like too serious. I just saw it as something to relieve stress or something to kind of get out of my own head while doing. And I always had my siblings kind of like come across old stuff when I was a kid and they would send it my way being like remember when you drew this for me or remember when you drew me this Pikachu on my birthday card when I was 17 or some some random memory that was like super cute and it made me realize like of how far back my like interest in drawing and like attempting the different styles of like realism anime manga like dipping into those kind of stuff tracing different characters and i think yeah my it's really like far back that i could like draw all that like that main interest from and i just but i I never really took it seriously it was always just that a pastime a little hobby doodle in class draw a little bit here and there maybe once in a blue moon when i was in my teenage years i'd you know go really hard at a drawing and put all my effort in it and just never look at it for another like year or so come back okay like i could finish it up a little bit but it wasn't until i was getting ready to graduate high school where i was really in a moment of like what am i gonna do like what what am i gonna do in college like am i gonna go to college like if i go what what i have no idea what i want to be when i grow up and i still don't really know to be honest that question but at the time of first being introduced to that question of I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, it was it was kind of scary. And uh, one of the first things uh, my mom actually did with me is she's like, we're going to sit down and we're going to do an aptitude test. And we're going to figure out what you're interested in. And from there, whatever the results are, it might help you get an idea of what you want to do. And I remember one of the, the final results was like media artist or graphic design. And she sat with me and she was like, well, yeah, you're really good at drawing in you. Like, do you see yourself ever working or doing something creative in life? And I was like, to be honest, yeah, because I don't want to sit in no office nine to five. <laughs> like, I don't want to. And I don't know if I have the strength to work like a hard labor mining job or anything like that. So I was like, maybe this creative mind might help me. So then I took uh, then I jumped in the. Uh, Sage up in new media and publication design at Heritage. From there, they really taught me the like core, core basics of like Illustrator and Photoshop. And, and from there, my like passion just like kind of ignited, like being able to learn, I think, and having access to tools and like bringing my ideas more to life and having to like really work on something to have an end goal and which later getting like people interested in the stuff that I do and taking a chance with my work and hiring me for projects. Like, yeah, it just still feels like an evolving time where I'm always growing. I'm always learning and unlearning at the same time for certain things. And yeah, I think it's just the interest has always been there. I just needed that moment of 
learning how to really take my art to the next level. And then from there, just this continuation of like expanding, learning, admiring. <laughs> I think it was the same for me when it comes to drawing. Like I started off drawing and like, I obviously didn't have my own style yet. So I would look up pictures that I thought were pretty and just kind of copy it. But like, I never said it was my, like my idea. I was just looking at the picture. I think that kind of helped me practice like the symmetry and like just doing all that stuff. But um, I think, and I never really thought about being an artist because I don't know, I never, I never thought I would be able to do it. And then I guess when I was in my, was that heritage and I obviously didn't know what I was doing and I was trying to figure out what to do. And it was a Christmas. It was before Christmas. I didn't have any presents. So I was like broke. <laughs> and I was like, maybe I could try painting. I've been pretty good at drawing. So I could try painting. And then I painted for my family and I posted it and people actually liked it. And somebody reached out for me to do a commission. And I was like, really? <laughs> And I guess that just kept happening. And I was like, wow. And I started off just painting feathers, but they look like leaves. And then I think that one summer, <laughs> that one summer, um, somebody reached out to me to do like for birds. And I was like, I don't think I could do it, but I'm going to try. And it, it just came out really perfect. And then I just kept going from there. And I think my sister kind of helped me too with getting commissions and yeah, I just think my family and back home really helped push my career-wise and still learning. But yeah, it kind of just happened. I wasn't really planning to do this, but <laughs> I'm enjoying it while it, it happens. <laughs> I love that. Your Blue Jay painting, by the way, I don't know if that's the bird one you're talking about, yeah. but I remember Blue Jay painting a while back. Yo, that uh that was the one that kind of made me figure out my art style and get more comfortable with expanding. Wow, I love it. I'm like, if we're dropping IGs on here, I'm like, I suggest anybody listening, like, you go take a look at that work, at that Blue Jay work. It like, yeah. uh, it's beautiful. It really is. And even like your use of color um, and like all the work that you do is so vibrant and like, I just, I look at it and my eyes are happy. That's what I'm, I'm trying to do with the colors. Yeah. And you're like so good at it. And it just like, you said your bird painting. I was like immediately Blue Jay. Yeah. That's when I thought of. That was one of the ones you posted. I like that um, we all kind of found our way to making art, not necessarily by accident, but it wasn't something we set out to do. I think we're going to start diving into kind of how queerness and being Algonquin coexist within us and kind of shape our practices. And then, yeah, so like how how does queerness shape your practice? Do you feel as though your queer and Algonquin identities overlap in terms of influence? Uh, but yeah, I think like being queer and being Algonquin has made it so I have a strong desire to celebrate and hold space for like 
the people and subjects that matter to me. I think it's hard not to be inherently political when you're existing in a world as like a queer person and a native person that has been built, unfortunately, to be against us. Um, so I like to draw a lot of women and femme folk, and I always try to model them after people in my life or in my community that I think are beautiful. Um, body diversity is very important to me. Um, and it's obviously something I'm still learning and growing, especially as like a self-taught artist. I like really try to put it into practice. Um, but like after studying art history, I was tired of only seeing like white dudes depicted in art or like white ladies. Um, and if it was like native women or native people depicted, it was always stripped of our autonomy when the artist wasn't indigenous. I think like Kent Monkman was somebody that really shined a light for me when yeah I'm getting like big nods because he was showing people like native people gay native people being gay and native and like looking back at the viewer and not it wasn't for anybody else's consumption but other queer native people and I friggin admired that and that's something I really try to put in my artwork especially as like like social media is a big thing for us as artists now. I want people to find my work and feel represented, um, especially like other queer natives who maybe like are from the res or like girls who are bigger or, you know, whatever. Um, I just want them to feel seen. Um, but yeah, I also feel that like being queer has allowed me to be more community centric in how I approach being a creative. Um Obviously, as queer people, we're always seeking that community. Um, and as somebody who's like, who gravitates between, you know, being an artist and being an educator, I always want queer kids, queer native kids to like feel safe and feel like they can create shit that, you know, matters. Um, and that's, I feel like I'm, I'm 26, but I'm, eventually going to be like a queer native elder so i'm trying to do what i can now um but yeah for for you guys how has your queerness shaped your practice do you feel like being queer and algonquin overlap all that good stuff that's a really good question i like somehow how you mentioned too that like when envisioning this kind of like intersectional identity that like sometimes we're not solemnly just in the present, like we have kind of not obligations in the future, but kind of like, you know, we don't only think of like just what's going on around us. Like we have ideas of how this might shape a future, but not only for ourselves, but for the people around us and what that's going to look like, which I find super interesting, especially like thinking of our own queerness and how that's going to shape not only ourselves, but our communities around us like taking in consideration a lot of like uh, colonialism, the effects of like residential schools. For me, I think, I mean, it was kind of young in my teenage years that I like came out. I had a partner at the time and we we're young in love and I was just dabbling into art and I didn't really see or feel at the, at the time. Like there was like a connection between like my art and my queerness. I felt like just trying to find myself and who I was as long as my own artistic practice and style was uh, 
a big mess, a big uh, all over the place mess. That it, when I look and reflect about the uh, back at it now, there was like points where they they crossed and weaved together, but I never really saw it that way at the time that it was happening. But currently, I find it's only more of now that I find that I'll like kind of explore that aspect of my identity and use that within my work. Like uh, sometimes when I'm having really like dry periods of no like contracts or anything like that with other people, I'll have the opportunity to create stuff for myself, which I know I got to definitely do for more for how therapeutic it is to draw for yourself, to create art on your own time. It's so important. And to create art for yourself, like so, so important. And the moments that I do have that, I find I'm more able to explore that avenue of my life and being able to like show that in- interconnectedness of my identity. And I think playing off that, um, just reflecting of the little bit of the past and the present, I think my queer identity was able to shape myself as a indig artist to not be scared to partake in things that were that kind of had a not Eurocentric, but maybe like outside perspective of what's deemed feminine and masculine. Like I know a lot of my work, sometimes I'll add florals into them in which I know from an outside perspective, uh, outside of community and whatnot, it might be deemed as feminine. But for me, like they're just florals. Those are the land. Those are so not like for me, just seeing the, the, like the beauty in that and being able to just, produce that even sometimes in more we'll say quote-unquote feminine ways like I never felt scared to go that route just knowing like being assured of who I am and what I'm able to bring to the table but being able to like bring all that stuff and interweave those things that are deemed masculine and feminine which are not really when I think about it like seen that way within our own culture at its core but yeah, I think uh, I think that's how kind of my my own queerness and my Algonquin identity kind of like blend within each other. But I'm still kind of like navigating that and kind of connecting the dots of where my inspiration comes from. Like summer, you mentioned Kent Monkman. Like ooh, I remember the first time coming across their R two and being like, wow. Like at first, I was like, this is some hot takes. Like this is some. This is some wild stuff. Like someone's actually creating this stuff. Like, but you know, having to learn and unlearn a lot of stuff and my own, you know, internalized, like we'll say homophobia of growing up, like in a small community, like it's only with time that I truly appreciate work like Ken Monkman's more and more as they progress as an artist, the more work that they create and seeing that not only can indigenous artists especially indigenous queer artists could create stuff out of like pain and suffering and what we live through but to celebrate like indigenous joy to show that like we out here doing like great things and we're you know we as happy people we're happy we're full of life and we have so much to give and offer i think we're kind of the same when it comes to like not really still figuring out how to like intertwine Algonquin and being queer because I only came out like I only like came to terms with being bi like and came out last year or like maybe like I was you know going through that phase where in 2020 where I was like I grew up with seeing all of this like cis just 
being exposed to cis straight relationships and I don't know, never seeing women being together and like being comfortable in public and stuff. And um, I think as I get to more comfortable with myself and just being myself, I kind of want to do that with my art. Like I want to educate through my art and show that in my art because I have, you know, I have nieces and nephews and I want them to be comfortable growing up and just figuring it out and not being afraid to ask questions because they know that I'm a safe space for them and just for other people. And um, that's why I'm trying to mix up my style and not just be, you know, indigenous, woodland, flowers, animals. Like I want to, if you ever heard of Chief Lady Ladybird, you know, how she expresses being comfortable in her body and like I want I, like I want to do that with my art hopefully do that in the future <laughs> but it, it's never really shown up in my previous art so can't really see the connection of being queer in a club and, but in the future I'm hoping it would be <laughs> yeah I'm like so so excited like I know the stuff you've been um, posting recently too has been you can see that shift starting to happen and like everything you create obviously is phenomenal and I'm, I'm not biased because we're from the same community or we're cousins um but <laughs> I think like Chief Ladybird is such a good example too because it's so like she has those um like woodland style elements and she does do really phenomenal woodland style art but a lot of it is also like talking back to patriarchy. Things considered taboo, like masturbation and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I know. She's so like cool. I, I can't post that stuff. I'm too shy. But like, <laughs> and I'm like, there's like kids that I worked with that follow me. But I, I like how you're both, you touched on like coming, not coming to, coming to terms with queerness, I think is something we, always have to do in native communities because you don't know is a safe person to come out to like i always i have been gay um like i've always kind of known me too but then i've heard comments being like ew and i was like but and i'm like never mind <laughs> and you're like back into the closet a little bit which sucks but yeah and then now there's so many like res kids who are like out and just being gay, trying out different pronouns, different names, like, um, like I'm here in a high school and the amount of students who have been like, use any and all pronouns for me, or like, hey, my name has changed from this to this. Can you only use it in the classroom so we can test it out? Like, you, our youth, our youth, I feel, I'm, we're not old, obviously, but <laughs> I feel like we're hitting that point where we're becoming, you know, old. <laughs> <laughs> Or older, but or we can start saying are you. Um but yeah, they're like becoming more comfortable. And then you said being a safe adult that they can be around, I think is so important. And you know, us coming to terms with who we are and showing that in our artwork 
um, is going to do wonders for the next generation as well and for our nieces and nephews and other kiddos that decide to adopt us along the way. Obviously, everybody here loves being Algonquin and coming from our community. I think that's been very clear in how we've been speaking about it. So we obviously love our lands. I want us to talk a bit about our homelands and what inspires us the most, whether it's physical, like the land or the water, the people on it, culture, language, etc. You can also say everything, because um, that's also a really good answer. Uh, so for me, when I was like thinking about this question, I always circled back to like my family's trap line in the park. Like it's near Rapid Lake, kind of across. Um, and it's funny, I found out like last summer, it's an old mining road. And my great uncle just like one day put up a sign and was like private. And like, so where we are, <laughs> we just like land backed it, um, which I think is pretty sick. And it's been in our family for a few generations now. Um, but like my grandmother spent a lot of time there as a kid. I think her and my grandpa met around there. My mom grew up there in the summer times. Um, and like for the grandkids, so like me and my cousins, it was where we go with our Kukum and Shomis to like whenever we'd stay with them and they had certain cousins they would bring together and certain ones they wouldn't because we'd be fighting the whole time, which is like, you know, I guess that's part of the job. <laughs> but, you know, they take us from like the spring to the fall, whether it was getting the camp ready, harvesting, hunting, um, getting it ready for winter, whatever it looked like at that time of year. Um, they'd make sure that they brought us there. And like, it because they grew up on the land and navigating it, it was almost like very natural for them to pass on that love and respect to us. And it wasn't something that we had to like learn or reconnect with. It was almost inherent. Like my grandmother would, we'd be on the boat and she'd start telling stories about like one time we were out here and your dad messed up the motor on the boat and they lost it and they had to paddle back to shore. And like, um, just like these random stories that make you appreciate the history and the the kind of connection that we have within our families. Um, I think I cherish like those memories the most. It was so natural to fall in love with the land from an early age. It wasn't, yeah, we didn't have to be taught. And our grandparents modeled, or my grandparents modeled, modeled it for us. Um, so yeah, when I when I make art or when I approach anything, I tend to approach it from like, how can we, how can I, I don't know why I'm speaking in the royal we, how can I <laughs> like represent my, my love for the land that I come from and this artwork that I'm making. And yeah, I, I want to hear, what do you love most about <laughs> our homeland? <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I think I have very, very similar kind of way of acknowledging that too where you know i feel fortunate enough that i was able to you know grow in my community grow up here and to come from a family that like uh was able to retain what they could 
whether that be through hunting, through fishing, through other cultural pack practices of harvesting, or just let alone being able to go out on the land, having that accessibility. I think that was something very, very beautiful to have growing up. And like, I think I draw like a lot of that of my inspiration from like memories of being a kid and places I visited and who I was with, what kind of emotions that were like I was experiencing during those times. And I think just, yeah, being fortunate enough to be like a little res kid and, you know, to grow up very close knit with my cousins, which I give, you know, to, I give to my mom's side of the family that really kind of set the stage for that. My, uh, my grandparent, my grandmother and her siblings, how close knit they were. They really made sure to pass that on to my mom's generation where her and her cousins are very close and her siblings are very close. And, you know, sometimes our cousins are so close to us that they're like our extended siblings. And I think we're very fortunate enough on my mom's side to get past that down as well. That my generation where, you know, some of my cousins there, they feel more like siblings, sometimes even more to my actual siblings a little bit at times. No shade, no shade. But yeah, sometimes they feel more like my actual siblings and more than cousins. And to be able to have that bond starting off since we could all walk and talk and uh, to be little res kids exploring and navigating the lands together, whether that be the the bush trails behind KZ school and <laughs> getting lost or, you know, jumping the rocks down Puckanuck Lake, sneaking there because I, I was never really allowed to go there as a kid. And if my parents decide to listen to this, I'm sorry. I've been there way too many times without y'all knowing. (laughs) (laughs) But like being able to explore the land of what we have, at least within our community of what we have left and being able to do that with my relatives, with my family, it was, if there's any like thing I can think of for like love for my community in that way, that's the first thing that comes to my mind and just being able to experience that, to have the land, have family, have a sense of community and belonging. Um, I think for me, I think everything in general, but like specifically like just nature and land because I don't know, we're just bright, beautiful people. And like, even though our history could be very dark, I think it's important to take a step out and go back into the nature and just heal. And I think I try to show that in my art too, because I don't know, even like just stepping outside and it gives you inspiration and can make you breathe and just go back and just remember how we were before everything happened to us. Like I made a painting um, called Before First First Contact and in my mind I was just imagining how our life was and how nature looked before first contact with you know colonizers <laughs> i think nature in general is just it's a big inspiration for me when it comes to homelands i love that i love that's definitely i think i i feel exactly the same way i think i wabbled on too much of memory when when it comes to practice i'm definitely the same way miss Glenn, where Sometimes I'll even be in a creative block and I'm like, I don't know what the 
to do right now. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I take a, like, you know, a walk outside my house and being by the lake or, you know, even if it means I go by to back to those trails behind Casey's school, you like to have that beautiful sunset and you're like, wow. And then you go, yeah. <laughs> uh, the land truly be like the inspiration. She's doing the most. She's doing the most. <laughs> She's, um, a few weeks ago, I was sending a picture uh, to my Cree friend and I was like I'm sending you a picture of our favorite lady and she's like what and she thought it was like Dolly Parton and I was like Mother Earth and it was like this sunset picture <laughs> <laughs> we like had a good laugh but it's like <laughs> <laughs> being able to like reconnect to our favorite lady Mother Earth um, is so important like especially and it's something that, like, when you live in the city, you think you can't. Like, it's hard. It's not the same as, like you said, Hunter being a little res kid. <laughs> um, and, like, exploring or doing res kid things, um, <laughs> which, like, yeah, is always getting up to trouble somewhere in the bush. Um, <laughs> or, like, uh, being able to, like, see a sunset and just being like, wow, you know, life I can keep going. Um, this is actually pretty sick. It's <laughs> um, I didn't like. I grew up in Cree territory, like here in Chisasabi. But every time uh, there's like a stretch of highway between Valdor and KZ when you're coming from up north, and it's like things change from tamarack trees and like balsam firs into these like tall, big birch trees and i always associated that with coming home and then you know as much as i love cree territory it has like a special little place in my heart it doesn't replace for me the way kz feels or the way the bush feels even the accent like i i love i love the kz accent and when it comes out of me i'm like this is my truest form um <laughs> 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 it comes up pretty bad sometimes but um i'm sure that's all people hear when they're listening to us talk <laughs> let's take a second collectively to daydream in this space and think of a world outside of capitalism and settler colonialism like if we didn't need to work to survive, if we could just move through the homelands freely, not worrying about... Um, so, taking a second to think of all that, what would your daily artistic practice look like? How would you want it to work? So for me, when I'm daydreaming, and I do this a lot because I can't wait to be 60 living in an old shack, but I, I want to live in like a shack by my family's trap line in the park where I can spend time on the land and just make art and like wake up in the morning, get water, you know, do all those bush tasks you're supposed to do. And then at some point in the day, sit and paint or go and collect plants and learn their names and draw them, study them, you know, find a way to fuse my own connection and learning about the land and relationship with the land with my artistic practice and not have to worry about you know paying my rent or like taking on a commission <laughs> that's that's my daydream 
And I want to hear yours. I could grow. Um, when I think about, like, I kind of just imagine my cookum because she has a cabin in the woods, like, like between Rapid Lake and KZ. And it's by the lake. And she, I don't know, she kind of just chills, chops her own wood. She used to bury pick, like, before she got, you know, when she was younger, she would just bury pick. She makes maple syrup and all that stuff. Like, she's, she's a bush woman. <laughs> I kind of just, I would imagine, like, being the same, just living in a cabin, isolated or surrounded by wilderness, just kind of just painting when I want to and when I'm inspired rather than feeling like I have to to survive. <laughs> but yeah, that's for me. Yeah, I would say kind of, yeah, I'm going to draw off a similar feelings that what comes to my mind too is thinking of like father's family comes from, which is more like towards like the Baskatong area before we kind of like settled in KZ or forced to be in KZ. We lived in Baskaton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a lot of, no, there's a lot of family, like different families that came from there and just little one by one people getting forced out of there. Like, uh, I, I could go off about that too. And for just the littlest that I know, I feel like there's so much that I don't, but envisioning that, like kind of, it just makes me think of that, of being like a, kind of more nomadic being able to travel i see myself like kind of wanting to be a little bit of sedentary and just sit in one place and chill but i see myself more traveling learning how to you know make canoes and etching my stories of what i've seen into birch bark and being fascinated with the many different people from you know different communities or even nations i come across with so i think for me i would see like kind of Myself, like, having that freedom, like Miss Cohen mentioned, like, you know, creating art when you want, more when it comes out of a place of, like, want and desire rather than a, a full-on need to, to survive. That I would love to, like, just, I see myself being able to create when I wanted and more, I think, focused on that, like, those travels and seeing other people, seeing those other faces, those different communities, how they live, what what that looks like for me what that looks like for them and kind of like that interconnectedness of us all and how that's like expressed through, you know, our, our love and care for the land, the water, all the beings around us. I think we deserve that. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I really, really love how you both emphasized being able to make art when we feel like it and not because we have to. Um, because like I think it really changes the quality of the work that you put out. Like I, you know, I I like working with clients. I work with pretty cool clients. Does that mean I always enjoy it? No, <laughs> as cool as they might be, yeah. um, you're still like forced to create something and find a way for it to fit into what they're looking for, and that can kind of take the fun out of it. Um, no hate. Thank you for keeping my lights on. <laughs> I wish I didn't have to do that. Like, um, we deserve to just be in the bush and making connections with other communities and learning from each other. Um, I think that's like a really beautiful thing for us to want. 
somebody make it happen. Um, this next one is like, I'll admit, kind of tough for me. Uh, so I think we can like do the best we can. And that's that's all we're doing at the end of the day. The best we can. That's all we can do. All we can do. Um, and this one's also kind of along the vein of of daydreaming or getting real introspective and emotional. Um, but I like to imagine queer, like what our queer ancestors might have had over the generations, what they were like, what their daily life was like, and how I can honor them now. This is a very vague, we're going to try. Um, so one of the the questions I kind of want us to think about is if you could have a conversation with one of your queer ancestors, what would you want to ask? What would you want to listen to them talk about if you don't have questions? Or what would you like to share with them about your life or your experience? Um, so <laughs> I've grappled with this one a lot because I'm like, oh my God, like, first of all, if I met one of my queer ancestors, I'd be like, thank you. Like, <laughs> I feel like, you know, now it's it's 2022. We have a lot more two-spirit representation, a lot more queer representation and teachings that we're learning about or uncovering in our communities um, that have been passed down, you know, from over the generations between queer and even, I guess, non-queer uh ancestors but i think like one thing i would say to mine is just like you know thank you for the love that you sent down the line um and i think i just really would love to sit and listen to them tell stories about you know all of these teachings that maybe we've lost over the years or that are sleeping in a different nation or a nearby nation like i want to listen to them talk about that and talk about maybe the way that their identities have always been affirmed for them. Cause we know pre-contact being queer was like normal. It was like breathing, you know, we were out here, we had roles within our communities and I guess I would just want to listen to that. Um, and then share with them that, you know, I'm out here and I'm loving, loving myself despite everything that we're, unfortunately taught or were forced to internalize or grapple with as queer Algonquin people these days. Um, I feel like these answers are very vague, but I'm curious to see how you you guys answer them. I mean, what you said was kind of like spot on, but I'm kind of thinking about like, just like generational healing because I kind of believe in reincarnation. So like they're kind of living through us and we're living, we could live, we're starting to live the way that they would and uh, express ourselves in today's society. And if, if I don't know, like if we had the conversation with them, I would just want to know if there are ways to like do better or like just, to go about living and just, I don't know, get advice, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, kind of just, it's very spiritual. It's like, <laughs> I feel like they're already around us and they're giving us signs and like, 
maybe we don't notice it, but like we're kind of they're pushing us to, you know, be our queer selves and remember that this was normal back in the day. Like we didn't have to be like, oh yeah, we're queer. We're just like, yeah, we exist. We're just existing. <laughs> yeah. Off. Getting getting emotional. <laughs> Me too. I'm like, woo, getting weaves of woo. <laughs> that was, it's so true. Cause me too, sometimes when I, if I envision too much in the past and like this kind of meet, like how I kind of envision how things were and stuff, I get to, I think I lose the idea that, you know, our ancestors are like spirits. Just they're, they walk with us, or whether they're family members that moved on, community, like they are still with us. And I'm also that, like a firm believer of like, you know, everything around us has a spirit. Spirits, you know, those who passed on and those who've been here for a long time and those yet to come are around us. They're, they help us, they help guide our lives, show us, show us the way, which I may not know what that way is, but. <laughs> It, it it's a way uh if i had to sit down with one of my queer ancestors oh my goodness part of me wants to be all nasty and be like, <laughs> <laughs> who are you shacking up with whose ancestors were you sleep and i love <laughs> what's the tea what's the tea i'm like family they come from i want to know <laughs> what's the and just kidding <laughs> You're like, how did you know you were cousins? Like, how did you feel? That would be such a good question. Like, how do you know you're not cousins? Like, did you hook up with your cousins? Or <laughs> were they just practice? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Oh, my ancestor would be like, "Hey, I'm hanging up the phone on this conversation. <laughs> like, we are done." You had one phone call to make on a real note. I think, I think more like kind of similar to not not to go too far from that is that I'd like to know what like how like queer love was expressed back then. Like I like to envision a lot of that too, of it being like you know so normalized that we didn't have to ex you know explain our existence or. But I can't help but feel that, like, there might have been some form of, like, not resistance per se, but, like, maybe, like, different communal norms. And I'd like to know, like, how that panned out or how that looked like. Like, how did love affairs occur? How did that, uh, how did they find somebody? Did they find somebody they truly loved? Or, and what does that kind of, like, indigenous idea of love look like for them? Like, who did they love and what did they feel? And, how do they express that and being able to understand that more in a like maybe historical way could give me a better understanding of like, you know, how I express love or what that means for me in the, in its most simple forms and what that looked like in my past relationships and what I could use for my future ones, what I could use in my current relationship. And so I think, yeah, I would like to ask a lot of questions being all, being all cheap and lovey, like, <laughs> what does love look like to you? That's a good question to ask. Cheap and lovey is the way to go. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's true that like in queer relationships, it's it's obviously very different from 
you know, cishet ones where they're like, especially now with capitalism and colonialism and we're taught like get married and have babies like that's all you should aspire to and then as a queer person how are you unlearning that throughout life and throughout your relationships and um and i also liked what you said miskamin about reincarnation and the idea of like our ancestors still being around us and being here today and i remember i'm blanking on the artist's name but I followed them on Instagram and they posted this thing that was like essentially saying in every lifetime from back then into the future, they're going to come back as two spirit and from their nation. And I, I think about that all the time and like, I wouldn't want to be anything else. Um, like no hate to the straights, but I could <laughs> never. No. <laughs> in the same capacity <laughs> like um but yeah i love i love that idea of like our, our queer ancestors are still here and we're always honoring them just by existing and being who we are be who you are i think just to add on what hunter was saying i think one good question too would be like because you know how today it's like the expectations of what a man should do and what a woman should do when it comes to like giving in a relationship i would want to know if that was the same like like what did they do what were the expe expectations or was it just equal give and take you know what i'm saying <laughs> yeah oh, i love that when, that's one that would be lovely to hear about yeah because i i think like a lot of people who talk about like like i'm thinking of uh when i was in sejep years ago um i had a prof that learned that i was algonquin and she was like oh like are you more matriarchal or patriarchal because the history books say you're patriarchal and even like my grandparents who obviously were straight um as far as i know um <laughs> they when they were in the bush like my grandmother was the better shot than my grandfather or, you know, he would drive the boat and she would navigate, but it wasn't gendered. It was, what skill set do you have? And how can you be a partner to me? You know, I'm sure a lot of our queer relationships back then were about that, especially like, <laughs> how, how can we support each other? Um, yeah. But still, it would be cooler to hear it from an ancestor. That would be... And it just reminds me of that. I could think about the amount of times, which maybe some of us may have heard or maybe familiar with, is like, who wears the pants in a relationship? Yeah. Who's the guy? Who's the girl? Or, you know, like more in the, we'll say, guy to guy relationships. It's like, who's the top? Who's the bottom? Who's the, and like all these nosy questions. And like, yeah. It's just so interesting how, like, that, like, heteronormative, like, that idea of even in the, like, when it bleeds to like gender of like the the power relations within that, like how they bleed into ideas of like queer relationships and what they should look like. But like I would definitely love to sit down with an ancestor and be like, how does you know, how does the community around you or yourselves like shape that relationship? What does that look like in that like concept, even of give and take or just being especially when it comes to femininity and masculinity, like people think just because you present 
masculine, it means that you're masculine, but you could be super. It's not feminine and masculinity doesn't have to do with looks. It's what's inside. There has to be a balance, obviously, but in today's world and how people present, um, like just say I dress like a, a dude, like a typical dude who dress, but I'm obviously like super girly. Yeah, that's a whole other like can of worms too is like gender and how it's presented. Like I'll have, I tend to deviate from like femme and like more mask. Yeah. But then I'm like, when I dress mask, like today I, I took a picture and I was like, I feel like a boy in a girl way, but also not a boy and not a girl. Um, yeah, sometimes. And, and that's why like, colonial gender norms are so rigid and boring it's like can't we just like have fun like we should just be able to express these parts of ourselves without worrying that we're not doing it right uh -huh. and like or we're like I, I remember seeing a tweet that was like gender is a performance and i want to be booed off the stage and i like i think that that applies a lot to like native queer folks or we're, we're just Man, we're just here. We're existing. And yeah. <laughs> I really, I like how you both answered this and we kind of took the time to explore it. I think it, it's give you guys have both given me a lot of like things that I want to percolate on and I'm probably going to like carry with me throughout the rest of this week and beyond. So two more kind of things to work through. These ones might not be as like heady. Uh, the first one is what are your hopes for queer Algonquin artists to come? What do you want to see happening? Um, so I was thinking, or my answer for it is more space for them to create and grow and showcase their work. I think, you know, we're seeing a resurgence of like Algonquin artwork in Ottawa especially I think there are like we said there are so many queer native kids just like popping up out of there out of everywhere um because they feel safe and they feel comfortable now and nurtured and I think having spaces where they can also nurture their artistic abilities is really important um and then spaces where they can explore their spirituality traditions and figure out how all of that ties into their artistic practices. So feeling comfortable in ceremonies, feeling comfortable, you know, in community spaces where they can show up as authentically as they need to. Um, that's what I want to see more of. Now, what, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> the clicking up space part is it's what I feel too. And it's like, I don't know. I think with like education being out there more and it's they just feel more comfortable to come out and just be like, yeah, I'm here. I'm doing it. <laughs> just taking up space and not feeling afraid and ashamed about doing it. Like there's there's no guilt about doing it. Like there's no second thought about am I taking up too much space? They're just there. They're not they're confident about it. And that's what I hope for upcoming Algonquin queer artist. Oh, uh, I'm like snapping my fingers at that. 
Because I still, obviously, I still feel like, like I get imposter syndrome. And Lady Wolf, I was about to say that. That was going to be one of my. I, <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen with them. Like it, it might happen, but like they could quickly go back to being like, nope. I am worth it. I am here. And I believe in myself. And if you don't, then get out. Like, oh, I love that. That's so important. Especially that, you know, I think we all, I think almost any, any artist that has a passion for what they do or drive or love, you, you experience it at least once that imposter syndrome of feeling like I'm not good enough or why am I here or all those questions of doubt and stuff really invade the mind and it makes working on things extra extra hard but like to kind of build off what both of you said which is the number one drive of what i want to see for queerness youth uh it's just that space safe space to be who you are whatever that may look like to express yourself in a free way and to have that sense of community to feel safe to feel like you belong to feel like I don't need to fit a certain mold in order to survive. Like I could just be me, like Miss Quinn said, just be. And then we're, that's all that that's all there is to it, and that we could coexist and be able to dabble into that artistic expression, like you mentioned, Summer, to have that space to be able to express ourselves in that way, no matter what that may look like. Because I think giving the opportunity to have that, whether it be like in community, outside community. And I say that word community too in a more like broad sense because I might not actually be on reserve. It might be like, you know, in an urban setting, might not even be a physical setting, might actually just be who you're with. But to have that opportunity to fully express, feel comfort in who you are and to let that out in a more external way. Like I can't imagine the things that we'd have or, you know, the Ken Monkmans that we'd have coming out of KZ or anywhere from Rapid Lake, from Laximo, from pick a gun anywhere like to have that space to just feel safe who you are and to have that sense of community backing you up and belonging and being able to connect with others in that way like that would be the dream to see those more of those spaces erupt and i think we're all doing the work like i gotta i'm giving us credit all here today to just say that that just us being out there and doing stuff and on like multitudes of levels of representation online offline and physical spaces like people seeing it it's it's changing and seeing the youth already like summer mentioned how some of them are just popping up left and right like i remember the people only being out when i was younger was a lot of older folk like way older than me my current partner was actually one of them not gonna say he's that old i'm like (laughs) i see he's old i ain't, ain't shaming or nothing there ain't no ageism coming out of me with that. <laughs> but I just know that at the time they were uh, they were in different stages of life than I was being very young. And, you know, it felt very isolating. And I'm pretty sure a lot of us, you know, it was all a secret. It was something we had to carry within us day in, day out from the moment we opened our eyes and shut them. So I think like just seeing all the the comfort and this idea of, being open about who we are, being more of like an empowering thing, especially with our youth. Like we, we need those spaces and whether, whether it be us that creates them or even themselves that just pilot them and do it. Like it's, they're so needed because we don't know what could come out from them and what more, 
what what they'll create for the people below for the next to come not even just for youth like for the older generations who are still that still have a lot of learning to do and like they have to call it like colonized minds and theories and shit but even with the kids kids can be inspirations for the older generations oh a hundred percent even that opening up maybe not even just leaving it to you opening up to like anyone anybody no matter the age no matter where because i'm sure there's probably like you know maybe even people feeling still stuck in the closet after all these years are people who would carry that part with them to the grave due to the act that real you know toxic thing of shame don't even have like that idea that even elders could come to this space and share and open up and explore that idea of who they are and be that would be the dream and that's not for just like kz community that's for like i'm going algonquin nation like beyond the borders even to of quebec and ontario like i think it's it's also what we deserve to have in our communities like you especially like you talked about the older generation and we know how difficult it can be sometimes to like and it's not like their lack of trying all the time. Like there's, I think of my mom who like over the last few years, especially has really like become such a, like she's so good at pronouns. She, she works as like an administrator or she used to work as a vice principal in a high school. And she would like fight for trans kids to like go to the right classes or be addressed by the right names and safe spaces. And like, not to say that she wasn't always open-minded, but she's been very receptive to catching up with kind of where queerness is, the conversations on queerness are at now. Because um, they're, they're always expanding. And I think like, you know, the older generation should feel that, yeah, safe, safety in learning, safety in unlearning. And yeah, safety in, in being who they are also um yeah thank you both for for touching on that like i i really appreciate it um and i guess that that leads into our our final question um and i really i know this whole conversation has been something that's been very like like my energy is up and i feel very happy and celebratory yeah we're we're going, we're doing good. Um, I feel like this is going to be such a gift for the people who listen to it, I hope. I hope it's not calling it too much by saying that. But um, it feels like a gift to me. We're blessing uh, you. Just kidding. Yeah. We, we're blessing your little eardrums with their, their crazy accents and <laughs> gay ideas. Um, <laughs> so the last question we'll touch on and then we'll wrap it up. Um, and I'll let you answer it first. But what's your favorite thing about being queer in Algonquin? I think my favorite part is is to just have that like layered like intersectional identity. Like I feel like I'm freely able to dabble and express myself in many ways. I mean, there is still a lot of learning and unlearning to do and still aspects of shame that come along with that. But to be able to dabble in uh, different parts of myself and to be able to express that in a more 
freely and open way and to I think get better understandings too of not only myself but the the people around me to to be able to be kind of sometimes even like a chameleon to blend in with many different crowds to have that ability to socialize with many different groups uh regardless of the background they come from in terms of like gender and sexuality like being able to see in a in a personal way of different things where they're coming from in the best ways that I can with my lived experience. Uh, I think that's one of my most favorite things. And that's not only like that as a queer person, but uh, as a queer Algonquin person to be able to understand how others, indigeneity and queerness interlap and being able to navigate those things together. And what does that look like for me? What does that look like for someone else? The differences, similarities. And yeah, I think just being able to to have that 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 so much so much rich and insightful layers within us it's 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 amazing it's it's super cool and that's what I truly cherish about that like my my queer Algonquin Nishnabe identity. I'm right there with you, both of you. I think like um the way that I I had it was we're able to view the world through a lens that isn't rooted in like cis gendered heteropatriarchy gender roles or feeling limited in those ways. And if we are, we're actively trying to unlearn them because we understand like who we are, who we're trying to be outside of what we've been taught. Um, I think that being queer and being Algonquin or being indigenous in general is like a freedom a deep love for life and everything that that encompasses, whether it's the people, the land, um, the language, the ceremonies. Uh, as Algonquin people, as Anishinaabeg, we're lucky to have grown up with a worldview that is so rooted in respect and love and care for everything around us. Like our ancestors have left us with so many incredible gifts. And I think that sharing even glimpses of them through the work that we do as artists is a powerful thing. And, you know, I think that I wrote, hopefully this is something our descendants will fall in love with too. But I think that based on the kind of love we've been pouring into this conversation today, they will. And I just want to say like a big, big miigwech for, for being here today and sharing those parts of yourself. And I, I appreciate you both and respect you both so much. Miigwech for having me. It actually made me step out of my comfort zone. So it's also appreciated. <laughs> I'm so happy you did. Oh, yes. Kijimi Gwetch, Summer, Kijimi Gwetch, Risquin, like having this space. I think we're all, we were all well aware of, you know, we all kind of grew up in a similar paths and knowing who we are coming from the same community really young. But I don't think we ever had the chance, I think, as all of us as individual artists to actually sit down and, talk about ourselves and our practices and so i think having just that between us this 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 time of sharing this uh this intimacy with each other like i really hope this this opens it up for you know more growing together as artists bonding you know friendships bonding and even for those listening for the you know queer youth back home that you know you're there's other people like you around you and it's so rich to build that sense of community and we're here we're listening we're rooting for y'all 
and just having this, just being able to speak about ourselves, it, it's so fulfilling and it, it feels really, really good. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for having all of us here. I really appreciate it. Woo! We did it! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. It helps us get that much more of a platform. To Be Continued Troubling the Archive is hosted and produced by Anna Shahawk. Technical support for the show comes through from Spin Sun. A major thanks goes to Hunter DeWashe for their wonderful work in creating the logo for the series. The intro and outro are commissioned works by artist Chris Bucko-Binkowski. The show would not be possible without the support of QAG and the Canada Council for the Arts Digital Now Grant.